Let us go before the throne of grace once again. Heavenly Father, we, we commit this time to you. This is your time. All time is yours. And we're just meager sinners that have been saved, that have found salvation in your Son, in him and him alone. And we have gathered here to sing your praises, to worship the one who saves, the one that has redeemed us by his blood on the cross of Calvary. And so now, Father, we ask that you would bless this time. Help me to preach the way Paul told Timothy to do, to preach the word. And Father, help us to apply your word. For your word is good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that we may be complete to do those works that you've called us to do. But Father, I ask that um, that you go before us, illuminate our hearts and our minds in those areas, Father, that we don't let you in, that we care not to confess. This morning, as we will be celebrating the Lord's table, remind us of that, Lord. Remind us of those areas, but also remind us that our sin has been paid for by Jesus, that the tomb is empty, and that he's seated at the right hand. And we await the day that we too will be able to do what we're doing here today for all eternity in your presence, to worship you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's in Christ's name that we ask this. Amen. Amen. We find ourselves in Acts 20, so if you want to open your electronic device, your Bibles, I don't think there's any few, few Bibles nowadays, physical ones. Um, but if you want to open there to Acts 20, we're going to be going the first 16 verses in Acts 20. All right. Um, as you're opening there, we, for those of you that are visiting, we are actually looking at, we've been going through Acts 20, excuse me, through the book of Acts, studying that, and today we find ourselves in this particular chapter. So, let us read now, Acts 20, together, starting in verse 1. We had, we had ended in chapter 19, there was an uproar. Right? There was a lot of commotion, a lot of rioting, and now we kind of pick up where we left off. It says, After the, roar, the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaze and Derby, uh, of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. Verse 7. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, 
Paul talked with them. Intending to depart on the next day, he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, and a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, we took him on board and went to Mytilene. And sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. And the next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. And this is a reading of God's Word. As we continue in our Acts, um, in the book of Acts, we find ourselves in this particular chapter. And if I may say, there's something that we're going to be looking at. I've titled this particular sermon, Ministry for the Love of the Church. Because that is, in essence, what ministry is. It's for the love of the church. It is, ministry is not for my own sake, because quite honestly, who wants to do this? <laughs> there's, uh, there's no one that wants to, you know, give everything and no return, right? And the only one that, <laughs> that we saw was Jesus, who was selfless, who gave and gave and gave. And so we follow really in his footsteps, right? He's our model, he's our example as ministers, and we're going to kind of speak on that. But, but one of the things I mentioned, ministry, because it's often that institutions have taken the place where ministers become kind of uh, accepted or uh, where now all of a sudden academia, if I may put it this way, academia now takes precedence, right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with academia. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying seminaries are wrong, that it's wrong to go there to Bible colleges. That's not what I'm saying. Brother Dayron just graduating from one and uh, with Masters in Divinity. So again, this is not what I'm saying. But we have counted on these Bible colleges and these seminaries to create the spiritual formation, to form and vet and in some ways say, this person is ready for ministry. And so churches oftentimes no longer have to build. There's no longer a need for training. There's no need for discipleship. We kind of hope that the seminaries will do that and they'll come back ready to be in ministry. But we often don't see that in Scripture. We actually don't see that in Scripture. We see people that are discipled, people that are cared for. And Paul was known to do this. And Acts 20, what we just read, this text, screams this to us. All right? So what's my point? Again, ministry comes from the Lord. Ministry comes from the Lord. I may believe someone is ready to be a minister, but does that person understand that their calling is from the Lord? I'm no one. I'm not the Holy Spirit. 
I, I, may, I may believe this person has the qualities and has all the characteristics to be one, right? But that might be the case. Again, it has to have the conviction, that ministry that comes from the Lord, right? And that calling occurs, and then yes, there will be, treacher- there will be training, there will be preparation uh, in ministry. But at the end of the day, guess who confirms? The church. The church confirms. It's you guys that will say, you know what, Freddie? If I want to go ahead and nominate a brother to, to be an elder, you guys are the ones that confirm. I just say, this brother is fit to be a minister, has all the qualifications, meets the criteria. But the Holy Spirit works through the church. And in today's Christianity, the diploma oftentimes has been reversed. The diploma is what confirms a minister. And that shouldn't be the case. It was never meant for the institutions to be a stamp of approval for a minister, right? Uh, but that's where we go at. That's why you all of a sudden, I mean, the pastor is a, pastor is a professional. We kind of went over this when we, went, when we did the trellis on the vine, right? There's a pastor that's the CEO, and then there's a pastor that trains and disciples. And oftentimes it's a CEO that, because we just kind of taken the, the world model of business and applied it to the church, and we think that that's just the way we ought to do things, and that's not at all what Scripture tells us. And so when we look at ministry this morning, what's my goal? To be able to look at ministry and its scope. What is the scope of ministry? And by the way, when I'm talking about ministry, yes, there's a part and parcel of those that will be ministering, a minister, preaching God's Word, teaching God's Word, discipling, yes. But that doesn't begin and end here, behind this pulpit. Ministry is something that you do, and ministry is something that you do at home. Some ministry is what you do at work. Ministry is what you do at school. I know Victor was talking about this earlier during Sunday school and missions. Discipleship doesn't, yes, missions and out there in the world, but discipleship is something that we're doing continuously. Discipleship is what's happening when we end the sermon and people talking and encouraging one another and praying with one another. That's discipleship. You're discipling one another. And hopefully we get to see that here in our text. So yes, ministry in essence is love for the church. Love for God's people. That is ministry. But, but Freddie, wait, isn't, isn't, isn't all this supposed to be the love of God and, and, and for the gospel? I mean, this is why you're a minister. Yes, you're right, 100%. It is about that. But you can't separate those two things. You can't separate love of God and the gospel from His people. You can't. Those things go hand in hand. They're part and parcel. It is what God, this is what Jesus came to do. And, and, and we'll see that here. So I have five points this morning in our outline, in my outline. It's ministry has its peaks and valleys, verses 1 and 3. Ministry has discipleship as a pillar. Okay, so ministry has its peaks and its valleys. Ministry has discipleship as a pillar. Diversity is a testament of, the fruitfulness, of a fruitful ministry. Diversity is a testament to a fruitful ministry. Fourth, the gathering of the saints is non-negotiable in ministry. The gathering of the saints is a non-negotiable in ministry, verses 7 through 12. And finally, ministry is about evaluating what is priority. Okay, verses uh, 13 through 16. So, let us look at ministry as it speaks in its valleys. The first point says, After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. We kind of glance over that, but beloved, 
the uproar ceased. What do I mean by that? In chapter 19, they were just in Ephesus, and things were not looking very promising, to be quite honest. The disciples were there, and, uh, and Paul, there's this big commotion. There, there's, it, it's, it's not good. It's not looking good. But Scripture tells us in verse 20, Luke writes that the uproar ceased. And we have to be reminded that in ministry, there will be peaks and valleys. There will be moments where things are okay, and you're riding the wave. Right? The Lord is faithful. I mean, it's just the Lord is always faithful, but things are looking good. But then there's moments when the valley seems dark and, and lonely. It happens. And you don't know where you're going to turn. You don't know where you're going to go. But in those peaks and valleys, and those valleys is where Paul finds the moment to encourage, to exhort. Look what he says. He says, he sent for the disciples. Again, this word in ministry Diaconeo, where we get the word deacon. This is what ministry, it's, it's to serve others. That is what ministry is, to serve others. And in the gospel, when you are a minister, you will expose yourself in ministry to great joys, but you're also going to expose yourself to great trials. It's inevitable. But how do we deal with them? I mean, if you just look at Acts in Acts, just, just Acts. Do you see this throughout Scripture? But just Acts. Something that we've been going through. Acts 2, you have Pentecost. A peak. Right? People coming to the Lord. I mean, the Holy Spirit coming in and, and just... It, it's insane how many people are coming to the Lord, putting their faith in Christ. Acts 4, Peter and John. Before the council. The very leaders of the church now have the, they're before the council. Acts 5, signs and wonders being done regularly by the apostles and the believers, being added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, another peak, coming after a valley. But then later on in Acts 5, all the way through 7, the apostles are arrested. And we have Stephen, the first Christian martyr. So again, this is what it looks like. This is what ministry looks like. Okay? And... Paul's missionary journeys were evident of that, but Jesus' ministry is also filled with that. Look at just, he's, he's calling his disciples, he's healing, he's doing miracles, right? But then he's also getting called a drunkard and a glutton. He's also called, he's not a Jewish nationalist, right? He's not a Jewish nationalist, he's not siding with the Jews the way he should be, because he's siding with Rome. I mean, after all, he's telling them, you know, pay taxes, Ultimately being nailed to a cross for our sins, for our transgressions, for the sins of His people. So that is what we see. The, the, so in other words, the peaks and the valleys, they're going to come and go. But the Lord doesn't. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is faithful. And that is something that we always ought to remember. Because in ministry, you're going to want to throw in the towel. If you ever want to go into ministry, believe me, on a weekly basis, you want to throw in the towel. Every time there's hardship, you want to throw in the towel. Edwin has oftentimes encouraged me, which as I was going through this, preparing for this, I often remember he's, he's just kind of there, just, hey, brother, keep pressing on, keep pressing on, keep pressing on. Because sometimes you just feel like you have the towel in, the, in your back pocket at any moment, you're just ready to throw it. But you have to remember that the Lord is faithful. That ministry is never about me. Ministry is never about you. 
Ministries about the Lord and those that you serve and God's people. That is what ministry is. So yeah, welcome the smooth seas. There will be smooth seas. And there will be rough seas. But regardless of whatever sea you find yourself in, the Lord is there. He hasn't forsaken you. And He won't forsake you ever if you're His. And ministry isn't for the faint of heart. I said that many times. It isn't for the faint of heart. The Lord gives strength. There will be moments, yes, that you'll have joys, but you have that faithful shepherd that's with you in those peaks. And after all, who knows the valleys better than Christ? He went through the darkest valley for you and for me. Do you think he doesn't sympathize with you? That's the whole point of Hebrews, right? We have a great high priest that sympathizes with us, does he not? So what's the, what's the darkest valley that you're going through that you feel that Christ doesn't understand? Try him. Go to him. Because he does. Because he is that kind of high priest that sympathizes with us in every way. And that leads us to point two, which is ministry has discipleship as a pillar. Discipleship has... uh, Ministry has discipleship as a pillar. So after it ceased... What do you see? That he's going there and encouraging. And he's telling, the, he's telling them farewell. I'm going to see you. But even before he departs to Macedonia, he's taking the time to encourage, to exhort. In other words, for Paul, time wasn't just something to take flippantly. What do I mean by that? In other words, time was a value. We know that, right? Time is value. Time is money. We, we hear that all the time. Time is money. Every minute, every second that you waste, there, there's, there's money. But for, for Paul, every minute, every moment had a purpose. He was going to take that opportunity to encourage God's people. And you see him doing that here. Yes, the uproar ceased. Now he says, come, come join me. Come beside me. And you want to consider that he didn't get derailed by the uproar. He is still focused on exhorting, on encouraging, on bringing the gospel to people to, and encouraging in the gospel. That whole word to encourage, to exhort, is parakaleo, to come alongside of, again, the very picture of the Holy Spirit. That is the character, that is the character of the Holy Spirit, to come alongside, to teach us, to exhort, to encourage us in our faith, to urge, to beseech. When you see Paul saying, I urge you, brothers and sisters, I exhort you, that is the heart. That is Paracaleo. He's coming along and saying, I exhort you to do this. It's the same word, as a matter of fact, in Luke 3, that Luke uses when he's speaking of John the Baptist. It says, so with many other exhortations, that word Paracaleo, he preached the good news to the people. That is what John the Baptist was doing. He was preaching the good news, but he was also exhorting. It's not just, hey, let me give you the gospel, and off you go. Okay, you understand the gospel? Great, that's awesome. Keep going. No. There's a training, there's an exhortation, there's a process that takes place. And this is, is this not the very essence of discipleship? To encourage and to exhort is to disciple. And these words, these things are not mutually exclusive. The Great Commission, which all of us are familiar with, Matthew 28 speaks to this point. The whole point of Jesus telling the disciples, 
Yes, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit, teaching, which is that Greek word didasco, which where we get the didactic from. Those and who are you teaching? Those that make, right? Those that are your, that you're making disciples of in Christ to observe. And that the word observe, uh, observe there means to guard, to keep watch over. Keep watch over what? The very things that you're being taught. The very things that you've been exhorted to do. That's what you need to observe. observe. That's what you need to keep watch over and take guard of. Don't take it lightly. Guard it. All that I have commanded. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew. That Matthew points down. I guess the best illustration that I can... It's, it's the idea of... You're seeing, in, in, if you watch sports, there's times where head coaches and managers get, they come down sick, they, they get sick, right? They might even be suspended for whatever reason. And all of a sudden, what do you see? You see a, an assistant manager step in. But what is the assistant manager there to do? The assistant manager is there to do what? To execute the game plan of the manager. That is what the assistant... Man- you're not there to call his own shots. Yes, you're going to have that freedom, but at the end of the day, you have a game plan to execute. And that game plan is whatever was in that head coach's mind because he knows his players, because he knows his team. He knows the characteristic of each person. He knows what they're capable and what they can do. And the same thing is in ministry. The Lord knows us. He has given us gifts to use. And so all we're doing is just simply saying, hey, I'm not, I'm not here to tell you how to use them. I'm just simply telling you, remember that you have them. Now use them. Because the Lord has given you. I'm just here repeating the same message that we see in Scripture, which is Christ. Execute this. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. I'm going to be with you when you're doing it. Don't worry. I'll be with you. But do it. Go. And that is something that we lose sight of. And discipleship. Is it necessarily a pillar of ministry? Absolutely. You cannot have a fruitful ministry, a faithful ministry, if you are not discipling. It has to be part of it, which is why even in lead, that is the D. That is what the D stands for, disciple. Why? Because it is God's character to disciple. Just think of it for a moment. You think it just started with Jesus? I mean, just go back to the Old Testament. God the Father, discipling the prophets. How many times did Moses not want to go? I mean, you just think of Jeremiah, Isaiah, just the prophets, Abraham. And there you see the Lord discipling them. You are my people. How many times do we see that in the Old Testament? You are my people. I am your God, and you are my people. The heart of the Father constantly proclaiming that, reminding His people, you are mine. And now you fast forward and you come and Jesus comes into time and space. What does He do? He does the exact same thing. He doesn't change the game plan. He grabs 11 men. Grabs them and and takes them and, and, and makes disciples of them. And so this is the heart of of ministry. To take them and to teach. To replicate. And and, in the trellis and the vine, borrowing the words from the trellis and the vine, it's disciples replicating disciples. You're in business. If you're at a job, right? What are you doing? If you're a manager in your workplace, aren't you training other people to take your position? That's what you should be doing. 
I know we view it competitively like, oh, I, I can't do that. I shouldn't be doing that, right? Because then I'm not going to be needed, right? They're going to take the other person and they'll fire me. But a good manager leads. A good manager takes someone else and says, hey, let me, let me teach you, let me show you. So that you can fill my spot one day. Because it's just a revolving clock. We're, that's all we are. We're just coming in. It's a revolving door. Revolving door. Edwin is going to be pretty soon retiring. Maybe, maybe not. And someone else, and he says it all the time, he's going to be coming in. And some of you are in the same position. You're about to retire. You'll get your reward. You'll get your certificate of years of service and, and your little pin and maybe a watch. I don't know what they give in Komatsu, but um, maybe you get a little toy uh, minor, you know. Uh, but what do you get? And that's it. And off you go, right off into the sunset. But that doesn't happen in ministry. In ministry, we're laboring continuously. In ministry, you're constantly looking, how can I pass the baton on to the next generation? And the baton is the gospel. We have to pass on the baton of the gospel to others. We can't just keep it to ourselves. And we want a disciple, not to create more Freddies or more Edwins more, or more Troys or more... That's not the point. You want to be... You want to create imitators of Christ. Those that will imitate their Savior. Discipling others, loving others. Yes, even those that are unlovable. Because you and I were unlovable. Don't forget that. You and I were unlovable. And yet Christ came. If Christ can go ahead and wash Judas' feet, beloved, what, who is out there that you say, I will preach the gospel to everyone but... Oh, because it doesn't exist. At least not for one that's interested in replicating the heart of their Savior, in replicating and discipling others. So yes, we want to make disciples of all nations. And to do that leads us to point three, which is that diversity is a testament to a fruitful ministry. Just look at the names. In verse four, Sopater, you have Aristarchus, you have Secundus, you have Gaze, you have Timothy, you have Tychicus, you have Trophimus. And, there's, and they're actually telling you, and they're telling us, Luke is writing to us, telling us, by the way, these are not all from the same little you know, city. They come from different parts. They might have, yes, things in common. But they're different. And that is what diversity is. In other words, this is the fruit. What we're reading here is a fruit of Paul's labors. Paul didn't just simply... Yeah, up until this point, by the way, we had what? Timothy? We had Silas? Barnabas? John Mark? And look at the amount of names now that have been added. Because ministry... Paul didn't just preach to those that he just liked. Paul continuously preached the gospel to everyone. And that is a testament in these verses to his impartiality. Paul was not partial with his gospel. He didn't hold it back from some and preach it to others. It was to everyone. Even to the Gentiles. And, then he know, and we know this because he says it. Yeah, I'm going to preach the gospel to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. Look at, look at uh, 1 Corinthians. 
In 1 Corinthians, he says, For I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid up upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For though, and verse 19, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win some, or win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one to under the law. Though not, my, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. Do you see what Paul is doing? This is what it means to be all things to all people, to all men. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I might share with them in its blessings. Just this morning, I walking in there, seeing our sister Debbie with Chloe. Do they have anything in common? Think about this. In Sunday school, others, I've seen Shorty there with, with, with these little kids. What do you have in common with a little child? That is, but to teach the mind of a little child, you have to come down to their level and see things through their eyes. And isn't that what Jesus did for us? He took on human form. He could have stayed up there, but he didn't. Born in a manger. Came to interact with us in time and space. That's insane. A holy God that comes to interact with the sinful people in time and space. And that is what Jesus did. It's disciples making disciples. There's diversity in culture, but there's unity in mission. I'll repeat that. There's diversity in culture, but there's unity in mission. You and I might be different. Dominicans will say things one way. As a Peruvian, I'll say things in a different way. And Caribbeans, and they have their way of expressing things. And we're going we're gonna to express things differently. But we're still going to express the same gospel. We're still going to have the same heart and missions. Because the message of the gospel is the same. It ought not to change from culture to culture. So if we're all rowing, again, I've mentioned this a couple weeks ago, we're all rowing in the same direction. Keep doing that. Keep making disciples. Do it your way. But preach the faithful gospel. Preach the true gospel. Don't change it. Then the application for us is, are there social groups for you? Are there social groups, ethnic groups, class groups, race groups, that would cause you to hesitate from preaching the gospel to them? Are there people that you would refrain and saying, you know what, I wouldn't preach it to homosexual, LBGTQ. That's where I draw the line. Because they need the gospel as much as I needed the gospel. And that is what diversity means. We've heard testimonies of people Coming in years ago, we heard of someone that was in that homosexual community. And the Lord gripped them and transformed their hearts. 
no longer practicing homosexuality. But someone preached the gospel to them. And that's what it's about. A ministry that doesn't exclude, but includes preaching the gospel to them. Don't exclude people because they don't express themselves the same way you do, or they don't look the same way you do, or act the same way you do. Preach the gospel to everyone. To the weak become weak. And whatever it is, now I'm not saying that, that you know, whoever you're preaching to, you must do exactly what they're doing in order to resonate with them. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying partake. You're still called to be distinct, right? But you understand where they're coming from. We're none, there's no group that's beyond God's grace and His mercy. Neither none of us are, because none of us were, right? Who here was beyond God's grace? I know at times it feels like that, but we're not. And fourthly, ministry has a non-negotiable, which is the gathering of the saints. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, right, right there, verse 7, at the beginning of that sentence, you, you and I see that they were gathered, right? When we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Now, yes, we're going to get to that part, the, this little anomaly of Eutychus, but before we get there, the point is not Eutychus, beloved. The point is not Eutychus. The point is that the saints were gathered. It removes any doubt. If you believe that Sunday and the gathering of the saints on Sunday is optional, I have, I beg to differ. Because Scripture doesn't give us that. Now, I didn't have it, in, I had it in my notes, I took it out, but whether it's Sunday or whether it should have been the Sabbath, are we really worshiping on the right day? We're worshiping on the day that we understand Christ rose from the dead. And throughout history, if you really want to go into history, you can go ahead and read, pay attention in your world history class, kids, but you can go ahead and, and, and find out what, what Constantine did in 321 AD. When he changed the things and he made the, the Sunday, which is already the day of the sun, which is a god, right? And those, that's what people worshipped. But he's the first one that kind of made that Sunday, kind of, you, don't, you, you, you abstain from work. And throughout history, people just continued in the same tradition. I remember going through the Trellis and the Vine, and Tony Payne teaching, he's like, you know what? There was an opportunity to reach a, a group of people. And that group of people couldn't attend church on Sunday. And so they had church and the gathering of the saints on Wednesday. Because the people, the demographic that he was reaching in that part, it was just during the week. And that's when they could actually meet. And that's when they had church. That's when they gathered. So don't get fixed on it's Sunday and then we immediately get into these conversations and these side topics. That's not the point. The point is that they were gathered to break bread. The other part is, oh, but they were doing it at night. Why are we having service in the morning? Shouldn't we be having it at night? I mean, we want to be a New Testament church, don't we? <laughs> the, time, the time is irrelevant. The point is that the saints were gathered. That is the heart of, of, of this. The word gathered, Victor was talking in, in Sunday school, oh, what, I don't know what to call this, 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 this building, right? This building is a, is a stumbling block, not a stumbling block in that sense, but because we call this a sanctuary. And I get what sanctuary means. 
But we don't have the Eucharist back here. There's nothing special in this particular room other than God's people come here to worship. God's people gather here to worship the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. So in essence, what is this room? A gathering place for the saints. Nothing more, nothing less. There's nothing mystical about this room. COVID demonstrated that, right? There was people that were gathering outside because they had to keep the social distancing. Well, was the church not gathered at that moment because they were inside the building? Of course not. The church was gathered. They might have been separated and distanced, but they were gathered. And that is the heart. It's the Greek word for gathering. It's synago, where you get the word synagogue. That's the word gathering. So it's a synagogue. It's not, don't start calling it a synagogue now, uh, Victor. But that is, that's, that's, where we're at. that's where we're at. It's a gathering place. What else can we glean from this text? That, Hebrews 10. Don't neglect the gathering of the saints as is the habit of some. If I ever call you to find out, hey, how come you weren't at church on Sunday? It's not because I want, to, I want you to check off a box. That's not the point. The point is, are you gathering with God's people? And yes, there are providential circumstances. Yes, I get it. But that's not what I'm speaking to. Is your heart to gather with God's people? Is that, is that your predisposition on Sundays? The day that we have to gather? Because if it is, I mean, that, that's what the writer of Hebrews speaks of. It's the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as we, say the day, as we see the day of the Lord draw near. Because the day of the Lord is drawn near. And the purpose of us gathering is to worship, to encourage one another, to exhort one another when we gather. The other part here in this text, even with Eutychus, is that this is not meant to be prescriptive. As one of, the one of the commentators writes, this is not meant to be prescriptive. It's just descriptive. This is where they were gathering. They were in a home. And we see that through the details of Eutychus, right? He fell out of where? A third-story window. That implies that they were in a home, which is where most of the gathering took place. People gathered in homes. They didn't gather in these huge buildings that we see today. They were gathering in homes. Now we have the blessing of being able to gather for more people. Praise the Lord for that. But that was the essence of all of what's happening. So don't, don't be prescriptive now in that we have to do it on, on this day and all of a sudden. And again, by the way, this is a Sabbath. So the first day of the week, if you're really thinking about it, right? This is after sundown on Saturday, after the Sabbath, right? When the Sabbath is over. You're beginning the week. The first day of the week. So this is what we're really doing is, is we're seeing Scripture and trying to make sense of it. So our heart is to worship, and, that, and that's really to worship in spirit and in truth. What about Eutychus? What do we make sense of that? It's just an interesting story, to be quite honest. There is no, I, I don't know what to tell you about Eutychus and that he just fell out of a window. And to be quite candid with you, some of you would be falling out of windows. Okay? Now, <laughs> let's be honest. It's a good thing we're... We're on, a, on, on, the, on the first floor, okay? But I see some of your faces. Now, maybe Eutychus falling asleep is more a testament to Paul's preaching longer, perhaps? Could be? 
But let me tell you something about that. Paul, yes, he was speaking long. He absolutely was. You might say, ah, but man, he should have, he should have cut it. Yeah, Paul, you've got to know when to, cut, when to cut your sermon, right? But beloved, it wasn't just simply a monologue. It's not what, what we're seeing here. It, in all reality, it was probably that he was dialoguing because that is exactly what the word means. He was teaching, he was speaking, he was dialoguing with them as they were breaking bread. In other words, there was exchanges happening. He was there to answer their questions. He wasn't just there to go ahead and just give you this monologue and say, hey, this is everything that you need to believe, this is what you need to be exhorted in, and, and, and go on your way. There's a dialogue that's happening. And that's why I kept on saying, so imagine, they probably had questions. They probably had a lot of questions, and Paul's there saying, you know what, bring them. I'll answer them for you. Now, of course, in that process, we keep going and going and going. And next thing you know, Eutychus falls into a deep sleep and goes out the window. Now, it's interesting because it's not every day that, you've, that you see someone falling out of a window. Now, the question that many have is, well, was he really dead? Could he have just been unconscious? And maybe he really wasn't dead? No, he was dead. He was dead. After all, Luke is what? Luke is a physician by trade. Luke is a physician by trade. So Luke had no problem confirming, yeah, boy's dead. And by the way, Luke is there. Because if you notice that we, he, we, we see that in Scripture, in the text that we read, he starts changing. So now it implies that Luke is actually there with them. So Luke could have verified that he was actually dead. And Paul was used. Paul was used to bring him back. What's the message? What was the moral of the story? To keep the message short? Perhaps. Perhaps. <laughs> Thank you. Another 40 minutes for you guys. Um, but, you know, but that's, but that's, obviously I'm being facetious. But it ought not to distract us of the importance of what the saints were doing. God's children gathered to worship. That's exactly what they were doing. To worship who? The one that gave his life for us as a ransom. There's nothing, there's nothing special about it just other than a bunch of sinners gathering together to sing his praises. Thank you. Thank you for loving me when I was most unlovable. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for pardoning me. Thank you for reconciling me. Thank you for justifying me. It's there. Yes, preach God's word. That's that we're not just worshiping, but we ought to listen to God's word being read and preached publicly. I mentioned this earlier. That is exactly what Paul encouraged Timothy to do, preach the word, right? Proclaiming the gospels we're called to do, so we continue doing it. And finally, ministry is about evaluating what is priority. Paul had the heart and he says that he went past Ephesus. He, remember, he wanted to be there already. He wanted to be in Jerusalem. He wanted to be there for the Passover. But he was detained. He was delayed. Why? Because of the Jewish plot. Now Pentecost is coming 50 days after. And he wants to be there for, for the day of Pentecost. And he understood for whatever reason. He says, you know what? I'm going to go. Now, does that mean he doesn't want to be there? No, he, we know for sure. Paul spent three years in Ephesus. He had a heart for the Ephesians. But he knew that he needed to be in Jerusalem.
And that's okay. That's okay. Because we in ministry have to remember what is priority. There's many things that I want to do, but oftentimes I can't. And that will be the eternal struggle for me. That will be the eternal struggle for me as a bivocational pastor. Marriage, family, ministry, work. Where do I go? But God's people take precedence. Yeah, there's moments where you will take precedence. And I will drop everything that I have to do. But do I do it at the risk of losing my job? I don't know. It's a case-by-case basis. <laughs> because in that moment, it might be necessary that I do that. But all I'm trying to say is that oftentimes ministry is not as black and white as we just think it is. Ministry has gray areas. As long as your heart is always to follow your Savior and the Holy Spirit who's leading you. Follow Him. Follow the Holy Spirit. Don't just simply think, well, I did this 10 years ago, therefore it has to be the same exact way. No, it's, it's, it's not cookie cutter. My ministry is very different than when Edwin was, was in ministry. Yeah, there might be things that overlap, but they're different. And whoever comes after me or, or, or joins me in ministry one day, it will be the same thing. Their ministry is going to be different. But we continue rowing. We continue, but we always have to evaluate what is our priority. Men, I'm going to exhort you here for a second. Allow me to do so. How do you manage your home? How do you manage your home? Make sure you are not giving priority to everything outside your marriage and your home, meanwhile neglecting your marriage and your home. If you get those things wrong, it can be disastrous. Especially for those that are in Christ. Because in Christ, do you know where your ministry is? Your ministry is your wife, your children, your home. And I know not everybody's married, but then you have children. Well, that's your ministry. It's your home. Don't give everybody else your best and give your family your scraps. And the same goes for women. Women, ladies, sisters. Be careful that you don't prioritize your career over your home. Be careful that you are not giving more outside of the home and to everyone else rather than what you've been called to do, which is to be your husband's helper and to raise your children. And I get it. Yes, there will be seasons. I get it. I'm not dumb. But that is not to say that that becomes the rule of thumb now. Guard your home. Honor the Lord. And children, you're not, you're not exempt. Make sure you're not prior, prioritizing other things above your schooling, right? Over honoring your parents. In other words, honor your parents is what I'm trying to say. I understand your children may not know the Lord. That's fine. But the Bible still calls them to honor your parents. You honor them. Don't all of a sudden think, oh, well, I'm, you know, I, I, I get the get-out-of-jail-free card. No, you don't. Honor your parents. It comes with a blessing. But honor them. Your parents have told you right now, all you have to do is go to school. Study. Do what you have to do, then do it. 
Don't all of a sudden say, well, I want to do sports and I want to do every extracurricular activity and neglect the very thing that my parents have told me that I need to focus on. Oh, but I have a boyfriend, I have a girlfriend now. That's not your priority. Your priority is to honor your parents and the ones that provide for you and care for you and love you, right? So what's the conclusion? Yeah, there are going to be peaks and valleys. But remember that Jesus knows them very well. Knows them very well. He went through the darkest valley. I mentioned this earlier. He's the one at the end of the day. He's the good shepherd. He leaves the 99 to seek the one that is lost, does he not? That's the good shepherd. That's the shepherd that we have. So look to him. Be encouraged. Yes, you will drop the ball. And yes, you will grow scared. But that's okay. Your Savior is not intimidated. There's nothing that catches our God by surprise. Nothing. Ministry has discipleship as a pillar. Yeah, to speak of discipleship is to imitate the very one that discipled. To imitate, to, to love discipleship and to disciple is to imitate the Lord Jesus. Who disciples regular people, by the way, beloved. He didn't get them out of, he didn't get the cream of the crop out of seminary. He got regular Joes. Nothing amazing about them. Nothing appealing about them. And that's who he took. And that's who he poured into. And that's what we ought to imitate. He is our hope and our salvation. It's disciples making disciples. Period. And diversity is a testament to a faithful ministry. The Lord Jesus never discriminated. He ne- Beloved, he's a friend of sinners. He's a friend of sinners. He was called a glun and a drunkard. Why? Because he was associating with them. But yet he was without sin. Yet he was without sin. Jesus' ministry is the epitome of diversity. He is the very one that took women. Women, by the way, in a culture where women were low class. And he gave them value. He gave them value. Because that is the heart of our Savior. And ministry has, is no, a non-negotiable. Yeah, the gathering of the saints. There's nothing there. It's, it's the koinonia. It's the fellowship. And that is what we ought to do as believers. Always look for the opportunities where you can grow together in koinonia. Church, this is not an activity. This is not something you come in and you leave. I go to a sporting event. I go watch a game and I leave. But in Christendom, you never stop fellowshipping. You're always looking for those opportunities to fellowship. You're always looking because it's never ending. You always look for those opportunities to disciple. Amen.